Hey church, I hope and pray that you are having a good Friday or a good whatever day you are engaging with us here online. But we want to start tonight, let's have some fun. We're going to start with a little game called Superhero Emblems, okay? We're going to put an emblem on a screen, and you've got about three seconds to name the superhero or the superheroes that it is connected with, okay? Uh, so they're going to get progressively more difficult, and we're going to see how many nerds are watching online this evening. Now, if you're watching this with somebody else, you have to say your answer out loud. Otherwise, it doesn't count, okay? You ready? Okay, number one. Okay, Superman, obviously, okay? That was an easy one. If you missed that one, you've got more problems, okay? Number two, okay, Captain America. Okay, we're starting easy. Number three, Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman, okay? You see the two W's there? Okay, it's getting a little bit tougher. All right, number four. This is the Autobot logo from Transformers. We will accept Transformers. We will not accept Optimus Prime, okay? Finally, the hardest one. Here we go. Where are my Generation X people at? Thundercats. Thundercats. If you got them all right, you are my people, okay? That's what emblems do, okay? They become synonymous with the heroes that they represent. Uh, that's why in Gotham City, when we see this, we know we're calling for Batman. There is an emblem that has become synonymous with Jesus for the past 2,000 years. People over the centuries on every continent have used this emblem, and the symbol, of course, is the cross. We begin our prayers with it. We wear it around our neck. We get it tattooed on our skin. The cross is synonymous with Jesus. Uh, Menelik II in 1889 became the emperor of Ethiopia. And he reigned for 20 years. And he was a powerful uh, ruler who transformed his country from a collection of independent states into a one united nation. And as part of his efforts to modernize his country, he got an electric chair. He ordered three electric chairs from New York City. And when they arrived, he realized really quickly that there was a problem. At this time, Ethiopia didn't have um, electricity. And so to solve this problem, he built uh, 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 this massive stage and had the chair bolted to it, and it became his throne, his throne where he conducted all of his uh, government business. Uh, it's odd, isn't it, right? The symbol of power is actually an instrument of death. When Jesus established his kingdom, he did the same thing. He deliberately used an instrument of death as the symbol of his kingdom. One of the most peculiar lessons that Jesus ever taught his followers was to pick up their cross and follow him. See, they, this was, they didn't wear bracelets or cross necklaces. They didn't decorate their homes or their cars uh, with the cross. No, it was an instrument of death. It was a torture device. Caesar Augustus once bragged about capturing 20,000 runaway slaves, and all the slaves that weren't uh, claimed, he crucified. In the movie Spartacus, it tells the true story of an army of rebellious slaves who revolted against the Roman Empire. 6,000 of them were crucified on the Apian Way, the road leading into Rome. Though crucifixion was a horrid way to die, for a Jewish person at the time, the cross represented a worse kind of pain. To be crucified in the eyes of a Jew was 
was to be cursed by God. If you lived in the early first century, this would be a symbol of your shame and of terror. Other world religions are known for their brightly painted images or their gold-covered statues. The center of our faith rests in execution stake. A cross, simple, stark, solitary. There is something to that old rugged, rugged cross. There's a hill of crosses in northern Lithuania. And no one knows for certain how this tradition began, but it began as a symbol of hope. And the exact number of crosses is unknown. The estimates are somewhere above 100,000. People put their crosses there in times of difficulty. And when Lithuania was occupied by the Soviet Union, people would still travel in defiance of the ruling nation and place their crosses on that hill. It became a sign of peaceful revolt. Peaceful resistance. The Soviets worked hard to remove the crosses. Three times they bulldozed the hill, but each time it was restored and the crosses were placed upon it once again. The cross is still a symbol of resistance. The cross is still a symbol of hope. In this time, in this season, when we're, we're quarantined, we have fear, we're worried, the cross is still a symbol of hope. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said this, It is good to learn early enough that suffering and God are not a contradiction, but rather a unity. For the idea that God himself is suffering is one that has always been one of the most convincing teachings of Christianity. I think God is nearer to suffering than to happiness. And to find God in this way gives peace, gives peace and rest and a strong and courageous heart. So here on this Good Friday, let us read the origin story of this symbol of resistance, symbol of hope. We're going to read in Mark chapter 15. Mark is the second book in your New Testament. And in Mark 15, this is where Jesus, after Jesus has been put on trial uh, for trumped up charges, it says this, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they crucified him. Asked lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. 
The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Jesus, at the most poignant time in his life, recognizing the imminence of his death, has this cry of utter desolation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. Scholars sometimes call this the cry of dereliction or the cry of abandonment. And the phrase is a doozy for a lot of reasons. It appears that Jesus here is questioning God. Uh, it appears that Jesus has his doubts or that, or that God himself has forsaken his own son and abandoned him. Now, there are lots of ways of explaining this. You could say, well, he's quoting Psalm 22. That's all. He's showing that he fulfilled a prophecy. And at first glance, I think there's a lot of truth in this, right? Look at Psalm 22 and the connections between Psalm 22, written uh, almost a thousand years before Jesus, and uh, the process of crucifixion. This is before crucifixion was even invented. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is actually what Jesus quotes on the cross. Verse 6 through 8, they ridiculed him. Uh, 22.9, bulls surround me. People thought that this represented maybe the Jewish leaders at the time. Uh, verse 14, I am poured out. And for Jesus, his side was pierced and blood and water flowed. Verse 13, his heart would melt like wax within him, water coming out of his side. Verse 15, I thirst. They gave him vinegar, wine vinegar to drink. Verse 16, dogs surround me, which, which maybe was a reference to the Roman soldiers. They pierced my hands and feet. Again, this was written a thousand years before crucifixion was invented or practiced. In verse 18, they divided garments, or cast lots. And so for many followers of Jesus, this takes the sting away of Jesus saying the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, he was quoting scripture, showing that God predicted this a thousand years ago. He's not truly feeling abandoned by God. He's showing the deep truths of the Bible. And for many, this line of interpretation is helpful, and that's great, and I affirm that. But what if there's something else going on here? What if there's something deeper, more honest? What I think about this agonizing prayer on the cross is a little bit different, and it's this opinion. I could be wrong. But the authors of Scripture here tell us that Jesus spoke this in Aramaic. Aramaic, which was the, the native tongue of the time. But whenever a Jewish person would quote Scripture, they would have it memorized, not in Aramaic, but in Hebrew. And Jesus doesn't quote this in Hebrew. He says it in Aramaic. Uh, a phrase that provides this whole crucifixion scene with a sense of drama and despair Jesus is just kind of winking at the camera saying, it's okay, I'm not really abandoned, I'm just fulfilling. No, I think we must instead give this cry its full theological and existential weight. We must read it with all of its horror and potency. Here, right at the heart of Christianity, God despairs of God. Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted and yet he never sinned. So there's no sin in what Jesus is praying here on the cross. The only sin on the cross is the sin of all humanity, past, present, and future, being born by the Son of God. He's bearing our sin. 
The atonement of Jesus was not a nice and neat heavenly transaction. It was a violent, messy act of God's great love for you and for me. It has been and always will be about God's love for creation. He is not distant. Even in despair, even when we feel like, God, where are you? He is not distant. He is near. It's never been about theological equations or saying the right things. It's always been about people. It's always been about real flesh and blood. You, me, your neighbor across the street, the mailman, the telemarketer that calls you every Tuesday at 6.45 p.m. It's always about people, real life. It's always been about love. Never in the abstract. Always in the real. That's what Good Friday's about. It's about Jesus having you in mind when he went to that cross, when he bore that pain. A man was conducting a survey. He knocked on a front door and a little boy opened the door and kind of stared at him. The man asked the boy, how many people live in your house? And the boy replied, well, there's Jimmy and Mary and Sophie and Bobby. And the man kind of impatiently jumped in and said to the boy, no, no, just give me the numbers. And the boy said, there are no numbers in this house. They are all names to me. You are not a number. You are not a viewer on YouTube. You are a child of the king. You were knit together in your mother's womb by a God who loves you more than you can ever imagine. You are not a number. If the cross says anything, it says that, that you matter, that the person watching this on a cell phone matters, that the couple watching this from their couch on the TV, you matter. Jesus had you on the forefront of his heart and mine when he bled on Calvary's cross, the place of the skull. He had you in mind. You helped him get through that because he was doing it for you, for me, for that person we love, for that person that we hate. Jesus died for us all. In his book, Written in Blood, Robert Coleman tells the story of a little boy whose sister needed a blood transfusion. The doctor explained that she had the same disease that the boy had recovered from years before, but her only chance for recovery was a transfusion from someone who had previously conquered the disease. And since the two children had the same exact rare blood type, the boy was the ideal donor. Would you give your blood to Mary, the doctor asked. Little Johnny hesitated. His lower lip started to tremble. And then he smiled and he said, yeah, for my sister, yes. Soon the two children were wheeled into the hospital room. Mary, very pale and thin. Johnny, robust and healthy, neither spoke, but when their eyes met, Johnny smiled. As the nurse inserted the needle into Johnny's arm, his smile faded as he watched blood flow through the tube. And with the ordeal almost over, his voice slightly shaky broke the silence. He said, Doctor, when do I die? Only then did the doctor realize why Johnny had hesitated, why his lip had trembled when he agreed to donate his blood to his sister. He thought giving his blood to his sister meant giving his life for his sister. 
And in that brief moment, this child made that choice. Yeah. Jesus didn't go to the cross to solve an equation. Jesus didn't go to the cross because he was mad at you. He, he went to the cross because he was madly in love with you. It was love that made him bleed and cling to that tree. It was love. And as we close with this song, let us remember what Jesus did for us on the cross 2,000 years ago. So at this time, we're going to partake in communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. And so gather whatever you have. You can press pause and you can go get juice and crackers or water or wafers. It's not the elements that make it special. It's what the elements represent. So during this song, take the bread, which is a symbol of Christ's body broken for you. And then take the cup, which is a symbol of Christ's blood shed for you. And we are called to do this in remembrance of him. Let's pray. God, as we take these elements from living rooms, from cars, from kitchens, or from home offices, we remember your sacrifice for us. Not as a theological equation, but as a proposal. God, thank you that it has been and always will be about your love for us. Your great love, oh God, that we do not deserve, that we do not merit, but you extend it and you show it anyway. And so God, as we take this bread or this cracker or this piece of cereal, we realize it is your body broken for us. And as we take the cup, this juice, this water, this soda, we remember your blood shed for us, poured out. We thank you for the cross. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take these elements during this last closing song.